Welcome back to the Crooked Spine Show. If you suffer from a healthcare condition and or had acute injury, you'll understand exactly now, this being October 2022, how difficult and frustrating it can be to get the proper health care along with long-term treatment to get your health back to your better quality of life. Today's talk, Rachel Horton is your health advocate to help you regain your health now and also help form your health team, your health team, your medical team, to get the proper care medically, long-term and short-term. In our talk today, we break down the overall highlights. We start with her health condition she suffered from back 14 years ago and how she recovered from that to help you become more aware of your conditions. All she understands too, when you're going through a healthcare condition or chronic injury or illness, understanding there is hope and find that hope through other people, maybe friends, family, or in her situation, someone more broader in her community. She helps you understand too, is when, when she works with her clients, she becomes your advocate, helping negotiate the healthcare system to find the best way to get yourself healthy now and get the right medical care. And our highlights too, we also include is creating their health and creating certain health questions and answering those questions to get yourself understanding where you need to be mentally and also physically in your future self when you work with Miss Rachel. Also understanding when you work with her, how she helps you shift your mindset and your actions to get yourself healthy long-term. And also we continue on, what are her core elements she works with her clients with and when she works with those core elements to get your overall activity, that they're living healthier, your mindset healthier, and more long-term habits you can form. So overall, your longevity of your life, meaning 15, 23 years out, becomes more positive. So at that point, we have a, a higher state of a quality of life as we get into our senior years. Also understand too, she gives you a free health guide and the link is in the actual show notes, how to get yourself healthy and how important it is to sleep better and how to make those habits better. So when you do go to sleep, you sleep well and recharge and have better health your next day. And understanding too, with, and, and as we kind of wrap up this overall talk, Rachel explains to you again exactly why it's good to form your health team, your medical team, and how to get there with your health insurance, where state of health you're in now, and how to talk to your health care team so they get you proper, the proper, if you want to call it imaging, the proper blood work, and how to make sure you get that in a timely manner. So Rachel is there for you, Rachel Horton, to help you understand and exactly personalize your health journey, short-term recovery from an injury or long-term illnesses too, because she's gone through it herself. So connect with her on her on the show notes who has links to her website, her Instagram and TikTok, and again, her sleep guide too. So enjoy the week, my friends. Get yourselves healthy. Reach out to Rachel if you need help doing that. Not enjoy your week, and we'll see you next week. Okay, this is Dr. Tony. I run the Crooked Spine Show. I am the host. This is Ms. Rachel Horton. She is in Michigan. She is has chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, and wants to help you understand whatever, whatever disease you have, long-term condition you may have, how do we get the steps to where you get diagnosed to how you find your health getting better? Because it's your health, not the doctor's health, not nurse's health, your health. At that point, get to a better state of mental and physical health by some strategies that Rachel's going to share with us today. So Rachel, walk us through 10, you were just in the back show, of how you basically started this process of, of getting getting the onset of the, of the condition and then where you are right now. Yeah, so I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia in 2008. Six months prior to that, I was backpacking in Colorado. I was a high school student. I was super active. I was super involved in school at the time. And the day we were supposed to summit, I started to feel this profound 
sense of fatigue. I assumed it was altitude sickness and dismissed it. But when I got back home, my symptoms continued to increase. And then it wasn't just fatigue. It was insomnia. I had weird light sensitivity. I had all these other different symptoms, chronic sore throats, everything. And I just went through a litany of tests and doctor's appointments. And eventually when they couldn't figure out and identify a discrete diagnosis, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And that was back in 2008. So it's been almost 14 years since that point now. And as I look at my health and my lifestyle now, I still can't believe how far I've come since that diagnosis point. And, and going back into it, back in 2008, for the first, say, six months or so, for the even first couple months, what was your mindset like, hey, what's going on? Or what was your, what were you, what was the character of your, of your mindset? What was going on in your head? I was so young at the point, and I had never encountered anybody with a complex chronic illness that didn't have a label that to be honest, inspired fear in the others, uh, you know, mm -hmm. people listening, right? There wasn't anything about chronic fatigue syndrome as a diagnosis that helped convey the seriousness of the symptoms that people diagnosed with it experience. And so my thought at this point was prior to my diagnosis, this is temporary. This is a flu. This is a mental block on my part. Maybe this is something that I just need to push through. I'm not working hard enough. I need to be better with my sleep. I need to exercise more. I need to do something better because there wasn't anything obvious that could be biopsied or shown on a blood test to give that clear conclusion. Like this is why you're sick. And this is something I've talked to a lot of other chronic illness patients about, which is the fact that in the absence of that one true like biomarker that makes it really clear why you are suffering, the common denominator in all this is ourselves. And we tend to blame ourselves for all these symptoms and feel like it's some lack of character or moral fortitude that causes us to be suffering like this, rather than understanding that there's something going on physiologically, psychologically, neurologically, whatever it is that's bringing about this condition. And it's not because of our own fault. It's not something that we've done. And yet at the same time, there is a way to develop agency in the midst of this and understand that there are habits and there are practices that can help improve all these symptoms, even when it feels like everything's out of your control. At that point, you know, at 17, I didn't have the perspective to do it. 17. No. Well, you're, you're going through the, the, the I want to say the common, uh, if you want to call it mindset of someone who's diagnosed with a condition, hey, first of all, what the heck happened? What can I do? Then all of a sudden it goes to blame. Okay, what, what, how, how do I now self-blame myself and feel guilty for what did I do? Okay, now how do I be assertive? Take, take it, if you want to call the rings, the rings on my core and be proactive and figure out how to deal with this. Yeah. The five stages of grief are completely applicable to health problems. You know, I used to assume that that was only something that you experienced with tremendous loss, you know, the loss yeah. death of a person. Right. But mm -hmm. really you're losing the dreams that you have for yourself. You're losing a part of yourself. And to be able to really fully grieve that process helps you move toward acceptance. But I spent so much time in denial and bargaining and anger, all of that, because I didn't understand what was going on with my body. And I didn't understand that I had any sense of agency or autonomy to combat any of that. It felt completely out of my hands and so overwhelming that it was hard for me to just wrap my mind around it. I didn't have a mentor or a guide or somebody telling That's me like, yeah. hey, yeah, this is actually reasonable what you're dealing with. And was there something where no one reached out to you or there was nothing, hey, your doctor said, hey, look, we're going through this. It's going to be a while. Let's get you a mentor. Let's get you a therapist, something to deal with the mental side of it. Or no, we just want more blood tests. It was more of the medical side versus the, so the psychological side. 
You know, I think it's a combination of all those factors. Where we are as a society now compared to where we were even 14 years ago is a huge difference. So people now are starting to accept that when you have health problems, when you have mental health struggles, that it takes a full spectrum of treatments and providers and practitioners and support to really get you through that process. At that point, I was just trying to get into college. I wasn't trying to deal with the life. My biggest concern at that point was literally, what is my application essay going to be and how am I going to get into Princeton, right? So eventually I did get the application topic, like chronic illness. (laughs) It just (laughs) wasn't what I wanted it to be. So at the Uh time, I wasn't thinking in terms of how could, oh, I could actually build a team. I was just trying to get through the day. And I was very lucky that I had the support of my parents. My mom was able to take me to doctor's appointments. Looking back now, if I had been able to connect with somebody who was, you know, five years, 10 years ahead of me and had experienced these symptoms and given me an idea of all this stuff, I think it would have been a lot different. One big inflection point for me was reading an essay by Laura Hillenbrand. She's the author who wrote Seabiscuit and wrote Unbroken. She has had chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis for decades. And she's an incredibly talented writer. And she had an essay that I came across online and I can't remember where she posted it, but she talked about the profound sense of shame that she experienced with being sick and trying to write and trying to have a career in the midst of all that. And seeing that somebody that I respected and admired, excuse me, had gone through the similar process, the similar mindset that I had had was so eye-opening. And it really motivated me to start connecting with other patients in a way where I could provide support and mentorship and the kind of relationships that I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed. It's almost like you're, you're able to go, Hey, look, I'm not the only one. Exactly. And at that point, can we, can we go, okay, now I'm not the only one. How did she get through that to be successful in her writing career? And obviously move and everything is, it's, it's gone from that to where if she can do it, I can do it. It's what, as well as it's that whole thing of breaking the five minute mile, right? What else can we, how else, once someone's done that, okay, now, how do I get that mindset? How do I get that 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 process, that thing that got them there? It's reachable. It's attainable. It's not a foreign thing anymore. Yeah. And we have such a narrow conception of what health is. It's all mm-hmm. been reduced to numbers on a scale, numbers on a lab test, et cetera. And we forget about the fact that community matters. Supportive relationships are integral to our health process. So if you don't have friendships and family members and people who are there for you during the process. It is so lonely and isolating and it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. The people you surround yourself have an effect on your habits. And so, so many people with chronic illnesses feel isolated or people who don't have serious diagnoses but wanna make a change, they might have people in their lives who aren't supportive of that. So if they're trying to negate the effects of heart disease or combat some genetic predisposition to cancer or high blood pressure, but the people in their lives aren't on that same track. It's really, really difficult because you're just fighting. You're swimming upstream. You're having to rebuttal everything they say. You're like, I want assistance, something to help me get through this. Not someone who's going to, who's going to add more or take away more energy, more stress that I don't need. I don't even have sometimes. Yeah. And it also takes a lot of the burden off of yourself. Instead of relying on willpower to get through and make all these positive decisions for yourself, you're surrounding yourself with a community of people who encourage you and support you. You're putting yourself in that, physiological, hormonal, emotional state where you are actually inclined to growth rather than just trying to berate yourself into changing and assuming that you're in this on yourself, that you are just alone trying to make all these decisions. And at what point did you, do you reach out? Hey, like, how do I find mentors? People have gone through this before. Was it, you found it online or what, what was your process of getting there? You know, one thing that made a big change for me was I had attempted to study abroad in, um, at Oxford. And I remember coming back early, I had 
to withdraw from the program because I got really sick. I got exposed to mold while I was over there and my body just couldn't handle it. And so I withdrew from the program and I came back and I had an appointment with one of my doctors. And he started telling me the story about something that was going on with his family. And he's like, you know, initially I was really private about what my son was going through. And then I realized that I'm actually doing a disservice to the community by keeping this stuff quiet because it keeps everything more hidden and shame rather than expressing what people are going through. And that was just such an important point and shift for me to understand that my silence was going to be hurting other people or it wasn't giving other people at least the opportunity to share what they were going through. It doesn't matter if they had the same diagnosis as I did. A lot of people dealing with chronic illnesses go through these same mental and physical challenges. And so for me to be open about what I was dealing with was a way of giving people permission to start sharing their story. And once I realized the power of community and my health, prior to that, I had just been like, diet, exercise, I have to be super strict, you know, no gluten, no dairy, nothing. And if I have the discipline of like a Roman centurion, then I'm somehow going to like, just overcome every chronic illness symptom that I've ever, and of course, it doesn't happen. Instead, I started focusing much more on social relationships, community, volunteering, finding ways, even if it was just connecting with people on Twitter who had chronic illnesses, where I felt like the work that I did mattered. And that I felt like I mattered instead of feeling that I was completely at the behest of my illness and I didn't have the ability to make an impact on a community. I suddenly found small ways where I could start to share. It's almost you're you're helping your community, but also at the same sense, it's going to be a win-win because it's going to help you feel, hey, I'm doing something that's positive to help the next person, next person, next person, like you said, pay it forward. So how, mm-hmm. how, how can someone go through those grieving stages faster, easier with support versus they go down a rabbit hole where they may not have the family support, may not have even the finance to get the right medical care. And all of a sudden they're now bedridden. Now they now they have nowhere to go. Now they've hit rock bottom. Yeah. And I had focused on my 20s so much on the traditional career skills that we think about, right? Like, mm-hmm. Am I proficient in Microsoft Excel? But like the stuff that you see on your resume, stuff that you share on LinkedIn, right? And the things that I had gotten really good at weren't things that I was going to be sharing in a traditional interview setting. But suddenly I found that that stuff actually had value. The fact that I knew how to negotiate the medical system, that I knew how to work with doctors, the fact that I knew how to set up Mm -hmm. a supplement system and set up a schedule for my day that actually allowed me to maximize my output, that became something I could share with other people. And that's how I got into my current career because I realized that these skills, this history that I thought had been a liability for so long was actually an asset. This wasn't something to hide. This was something I needed to share more and more. Well, it's, it's almost you're filling a gap that people want but can't get from their healthcare practitioner. Yeah. They, they actually, they're, they're getting the, almost a runaround even more now with everything being online, video conferences online, talk to your doctor online, even just a phone call too, being told we can do an MRI in six months. We can do a blood test in three weeks so that the lack, the, the lack of initial urgent care that people are not receiving, that gives them more doubt. That gives them more time to become more anxious, gives them more time to go, what else can it be? What maybe it's this? Maybe it's I, people, for example, a few years ago, they'll get a mammogram, right? Mm-hmm. And then the doctor would say, we'll see you in a month for your results. Oh, my gosh. Go, <laughs> I'm like, no, you're going to call your doctor's office because they're going to have the results in less than three or four days call them, fax it over to your other doctor over here at my office, and let's go over them right away. And nine, and nine, 10 out of 10 times, at least in my office, was there's nothing going on. But with, with that, that lack, as you know, that lack of or that lag time 
allowed them to build up more and more anxiety, not knowing what if, all the what ifs, what, what's, what else could it be? So having yeah. that, 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 I guess that current time frame of being even longer now with COVID allows people to build up more anxiety, correct? Well, what I see is that we're, we have a medical system that shortchanges both the patients and the providers. When I talk to doctors, I see a lot of the frustration that they have because they can't give the care that they want to deliver. And they're under a ton of constraints as well because of how our medical system is reimbursed. And I see patients who maybe get a diagnosis, but they don't really get the explanation of how they actually deal with it. They're told that they have high blood pressure, that they have high cholesterol, that they need to reduce their stress and they need to sleep better. But telling somebody how, that they need to sleep better and actually getting them to sleep better are two completely different things. I know that because I've dealt with insomnia for years and I theoretically would have had all the tools, but I didn't necessarily have the support and the accountability and the encouragement I needed to put that into place. And so when I think about how we can make changes within our current medical system. A lot of it is finding these areas between patients and providers where you can provide that support in between appointments on a, in a way that's accessible. So a lot of chronic illness patients don't have the energy or don't have the ability to get into the office for in-person appointments. So providing virtual care and virtual support, providing group work. So I do a lot of volunteer work with patients with diabetes and that way they get the social support of knowing that they're dealing with this illness with other people around them. They're not isolated, but it's also a way for them to come and share strategies that they find work for them with other people. And it's so wonderful to be able to see that. And I think what we're seeing right now is that we have this opportunity to be creative with how we approach medical care. Well, it allows them, uh, like you said too, with, with group and with support, a way to not only vent, hey, I'm feeling this, is this normal, what's going on? even one-on-one to what you're doing also allows people to give that, that, okay, even though I don't need her every day, she's there available to me. So at that point, I, I feel less anxious. I feel less out of control. I feel less, I'm not waiting for the doctor to call me back in three days. I, I'm, I have someone who can contact me the same day, even a couple of same hours. At that point, I know I'm on the right track. I'm not missing something. Yeah, I provide all my one-on-one -on -one clients with email support because I know how important it is when you're making these changes, either because you're having frustration because healing isn't linear and so sometimes you have setbacks and that's totally fine, but to be able to have somebody who says, hey, I still believe in you, I know you're capable of this and I know you can keep going, and at the same time, here's a tweak that might make this a little bit easier for you, right? I'm all about personalization. I think about a client I had who wanted to exercise more, right? Exercise is always a big deal for people I see and we were talking about bringing back more joy and movement. And it ended up being that gardening was one of the perfect solutions for her. It got her outside. It was something that she was deeply interested in because she had so much curiosity and intellectual interest in the practice, but also it solved this quest for more movement. But it was so personalized to her. I would have never come up with, hey, if you want to move more, try gardening. I'm not into gardening. It's not my thing. So I don't know a lot about it. But <laughs> We were able to come up with this really personalized, unique way of approaching this need for more movement. And it becomes so much more sustainable than if I had told her, you need to go to the gym three times a week for an hour and you need to do these machines because she wasn't interested in that. Great, great, fantastic. Yeah, cool. That sounds incredibly boring. Great. Like, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> Thanks for the help. I will call you when that doesn't happen. Well, yeah. A lot of it is you're helping them stay here across by doing what they do, what they like to do already, whatever that yeah, might be. Yeah, find joy and what what could be healthy for them, right? It's about finding food mm -hmm. that excites them and then find brings people together. It's not about 
feeling like they always have to be depriving themselves. And the same thing with movement. It's not about punishing yourself with a workout. It's not about training as if you were going to be joining the Navy SEALs, unless you want to do that. And that's great. And I fully support yeah. you. But most of my clients aren't trying to do that, right? They have demanding jobs. They have families. They have commitments. And so they want to know how to be healthy within those constraints. And that's where the personalization and customization comes in. I think people find a lot of freedom when they realize that, Actually, a lot of things that they naturally want to do, that they enjoy doing, maybe things that they enjoy doing as a child are incredibly healthy and could actually further their goals. Are you trying to, if you want to call it not reprogram, but get them out of the average, want to call it the stereotype of the American, they need to do this, 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 and this versus, hey, like, what do you like to do? You're almost going back to their, I won't say childhood all the time, but almost like what their personal things are versus you may not fit in the social norm. I want them to understand what their broader purpose is in life and connect that to their daily habits. So for a lot of people, you know, if you're a small business owner, you want to leave a certain legacy. You want to be a certain kind of role model to your clients and to your employees. You want to deliver a certain level of service. And maybe you also have kids and you want to set an example for them. I want people to start thinking about their decisions in terms of that more expansive view of what their life could be rather than this very narrow and negative sense of, if I need to be healthy, then I need to deprive myself of this food and I need to punish myself into doing this thing. And if I mess up, that means that I'm a bad person. I want people instead to think about what do you really value in life? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What is it that you want to do in terms of an impact on your community? And what are the decisions now that will help fuel a lifetime of that activity? And when you're going through that route, how do you, when you set up a client, Let's walk through your process of how you really your day one through your, say, say the first three months. How do you usually work with your clients? Yeah, so we'll start off with a case review. We'll do a full medical history, and that's just getting an overview of all their symptoms, all their diagnoses, everything that's going on with them, all their pain points, and really highlighting what are the big things that are bothering them right now that are causing, that are impeding the progress they want to make in their life, and where would they rather be? And a lot of that comes down to, perhaps um, family history things. So they have a family history of cardiovascular disease and they're worried about that. They're, they see that coming, looming on the horizon or they have really bad insomnia and it's leading to stress and high blood pressure and that's affecting their ability to work. They want to be present for their relationships but they have very demanding commitments right now and that impedes that progress. And then when it comes to food, maybe that becomes a last resort because with all these other commitments in their life, they don't have time to really focus on the getting the nutrition that they need. So the big case review is an idea is let's see where you are right now and have an idea of where you want to be. And then the first session I have with my clients after that is all about defining and articulating their vision of well-being. What does health really mean to them? When they're yeah. feeling their absolute best, what does their life look like? What are they able to do? when they do not have these nagging symptoms in their life. And that becomes this expansive option for people to just dream and really understand like what could their lives really look like if they had all this stuff in line. And then the next ensuing sessions are all about cultivating and developing that sense of what well-being is that's unique to them. So I'm sending them customized resources throughout the week that are tailored to their unique diagnoses and their symptoms. And then mm -hmm. we're coaching and these weekly sessions through this process. So if they're dealing with high blood pressure, it's looking at, okay, let's talk about movement. Let's talk about your diet. Good. Let's talk about managing stress levels. Let's talk about sleep. Let's find ways that are unique and customized for you to address all these different symptoms. And 
we do that for a couple of months. And along the way, I'm providing them with all that support and encouragement and accountability to make sure that they are staying on track, but they're really getting closer to that ideal vision of themselves. What is their mindset coming into, say, the case study and say a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, uh, two months later, how does their mindset usually shift? There's an evolution that happens when people decide that they want to develop a sense of agency around their health. Developing the sense of agency is really the core of what I do. It's helping people understand that their decisions matter. When I look back at the early days of my diagnosis and when I see a lot of people coming in, a lot of people have this, what I call mild nihilism around feeling like what they do sort of matters, but at the end of the day, they're still going to be sick. They're still going to have high blood pressure. They're still going to have high cholesterol, whatever it is, right? They maybe have genetic predisposition, predisposition toward these things. Maybe it runs in their family, you know, their spouse is overweight, whatever it is. It feels like these things are just inevitable and that they don't have any sense of being able to work through that. As we start to work together, what I see is a sense of possibility developing, people starting to understand that when they develop a little bit more mindfulness around their decisions, they see how different foods, different activities affect them. They go for a walk after dinner instead of scrolling on their phones and suddenly they start to see the shift in their mind or they notice that certain foods maybe that they used to crave and they used to binge on don't satisfy them the way that they used to. And in fact, they actually find it way more satisfying to go spend an afternoon volunteering or have a conversation with a friend that they haven't talked to in a while. They start to see that things that felt like they were completely out of their control are actually things that they can manage. And that gives them the power to make changes in all areas of their life. It's almost you're giving them hope. Hey, your, your, your condition is based on maybe lifestyle, what you're doing and, and what you're thinking. Can we now give you steps and you're giving them micro steps even too, to change mm -hmm. that, mi that mindset to where end of the world for me versus, hey, now I can actually get to where this diagnosis changes. My lifestyle changes because of that. Hey, Rachel's helping me find out what I need to do that works within my personal, if you want to call it enjoyment, to allow me to get there slowly to see the end result as being a better, if you want to call it overall better well-being beyond this overall diagnosis. Yeah, it's a sustainable change. And people realize that they're no longer resigned to that fate, right? That diagnosis of you have this, you have this, it feels like powerlessness, right? You feel mm -hmm. the sense of this inevitable march toward doom instead of- Where does that come from? Where does that come from normally? That, 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 that sense of, this is it, I'm done. I can't, I can't get away from this, this disease, this condition. Right, I think it's different for every person and it depends on the disease, but I also think that a lot of times we are so isolated and siloed when it comes to healthcare, instead of treating this as we're part of a community of people who are struggling with a lot of the same conditions. And when one person makes a positive change, it affects the other people. And when you start to see yourself as part of that bigger picture, I think you take your decisions seriously in a way that you maybe hadn't before. And one thing that I noticed is that when you start making one step, your confidence builds and that starts to have this positive upward spiral, which we talk about in positive psychology, right? And so when I work with a client and maybe one session is focused on cultivating a nighttime ritual, a nighttime routine that helps them wind down and really has a positive effect on their sleep quality throughout the night. They'll come back to me the next week and they're like, so I tried this, but I actually also did X, Y, Z because they realize that when they see that they are effective and they're capable of doing one thing, they look at other areas in their life where they might see mm -hmm. they have the power to do something else. And then 
this sense of self-advocacy, the sense of confidence around what they're capable of spreads. It almost, you get momentum. Hey, once you try this, I got this. And then that fire starts to breathe like, hey, hey, I got this. Actually, you see their their tone of voice change. You see their words change. You see their personality change even too, correct? Exactly. Because the thing is, I can't guarantee anybody's results. What I want people to do is adopt habits that they are proud of, that they value Mm -hmm. regardless of the outcome. And people start to take pride in the fact that they made that choice. It's not about I dropped five pounds in the scale. It's I went for a walk five times this week with my husband, or I tried this new recipe that I'd never done before, or I had a little bit of mindfulness during an argument. And instead of snapping at my wife, I actually calmed down and we had a really productive conversation. It's you, the metrics by which you measure success start to shift. It's almost, we're going away from the quantitative lab results, say number of coaches that we can do to something that's more qualitative. Hey, how's your overall life feel? How do you feel? How do you feel about people around you? How's your community? How's your family? Yeah. And these are the decisions that you really do have control over, right? To a certain extent, genetics will dictate a certain portion of your health. And Mm -hmm. there are some chronic illnesses that are really debilitating that are hard to resolve completely, right? But there are so many other areas in your life over which you do have an influence. And that's the areas that we focus on the most. And talk to me about your your areas that you focus on, the four, I want to say four, but things you focus with your clients on a, if you want to call it a global base, but also as a session basis too. Yeah. So the core elements of my, my program with my clients are sleep, movement, food, mm-hmm. and mood. And the order in which we approach those really depends on the people I'm working with. Good. What I try to do in those early sessions in the case review and in that initial session with a person is walk backwards and try and identify what are the habits that make everything else possible. For some people, that's having a really solid meals that they know that they can prepare that are high in protein that are nutrient dense that are anti-inflammatory that give them the energy to do what they want to do throughout the day and so we'll focus on food first for other people it all hinges on sleep if they're not sleeping well nothing else is possible and so dialing in sleep which is not an easy feat at all is where we spend the bulk of our time because they know that's where they're going to have the biggest gains that's where this customization piece comes in because it's really about what's going to be most effective for my client to start with and also understanding that these are the habits in these four areas that are going to create a lifetime of health for them. These are things that are going to serve them in a number of diagnoses. It's not specific to one health condition, but really to address a lot of the really common metabolic and lifestyle-related illnesses that people are having. You talked about mood. How do you, how do you help with someone with their mood, their mindset? I think a lot of times we have this sort of blanket approach, like everybody needs to meditate for 68 minutes, or everybody needs to quit their job and join an ashram and like do yoga on endlessly chant for you know 60 hours a week or whatever it's really about having people develop a sense of joy in their lives a sense of the ability to pause to say no to rest to learn how to develop mindfulness which looks different for other everyone sometimes it's journaling sometimes it's meditation and a mindfulness practice in the most traditional sense for other people it's giving them the space to be able to go for a walk and have more contemplation in their lives. I have some clients who are really intellectually curious. And so having books in their lives that cause them to think about bigger ideas is actually a respite for them from the craziness of their days, because it gives them that intellectual curiosity, that satiating sense of like that they're thinking about something bigger than just themselves. A lot of times we get so caught up in our own in our own struggles, and that's understandable, but we lose that sense of awe and that sense of wonder that you get when you go outside and you look up at the stars. It's amazing when when someone has the way that they like to 
if you want to look at the world, their perception, and we get so so narrow, we lose track of, hey, there's more people out there. There's, there's different times in our world that's been around forever. And how do we absorb that and go, hey, how do I now incorporate that in my own life to make my life better? Yeah, it's very egocentric, right? To think about that I'm going to think my way out of all my problems mm -hmm. versus understanding that, you know, from social psychology research, we look at four areas that contribute to happiness, faith, family, meaningful work, community. And regardless of whether that's religion or that's a sense of the transcendent or spirituality, whatever it is, having something that causes you to contemplate something bigger than yourself is a big part of understanding that mood, that mindset picture. And then thinking about, okay, so that's more abstract. What does that look like on a daily basis? What are the things that bring you a sense of peace and a sense of resting? And allow you to take that pause versus feeling like you're just go, go, go all the time and you don't have any kind of release. And that's part of it is you're, you're helping someone understand their whole, their whole, if you want to call it sunrise or their sunrise to sunset uh, dictates how their health's going to be, correct? Their overall well-being. Yeah, we have this assumption. I think the same thing is true with happiness, that it's the big things in our life. You know, I'm going to go do this like two-day cryotherapy retreat or something, right? And that's going to give me health for the next 10 years, or I'm going to take this amazing vacation and then I'm going to be happy for the next decade rather than thinking about it's actually the habits and the systems and the practices that we do on a daily basis that dictate our mood, that dictate our level of happiness and satisfaction and enjoyment in our life. Because I meet with a lot of people who are incredibly successful and they don't really know how to enjoy that yet. They're almost thinking about, okay, in five years, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy life. Then I'll be happy then in five years. Versus yeah. I have to do all the work right now and I have to make sure I suffer right now. I have to make sure I, I cut people off right now, whatever it is, versus, hey, why not make that? And I always think about older, happy people. I'm like, how do they get there? What do they do? So their daily their daily lifestyle is a smile. Hey, hey, look at those flowers. Check out what happened today versus the negativity that most people are listening to or watching or even promoting sometimes too. Yeah, there's an understanding that there are things to look forward to in life and that also there are these daily practices and habits that bring a lot of joy in a surprising way because they seem so simple and they seem so quiet. And I think people overlook the sense of satisfaction they get from adopting these things into their lives because they don't seem splashy, right? We wanna, we wanna assume that health is about injecting ourselves with all these things and doing these crazy retreats and doing all these sort of cutting edge, whatever anti-aging rituals and that yeah. stuff certainly be fun, right? But a lot of it comes down to much more, I don't want to say basic, but a simpler approach to life, which doesn't mean it's easy to adopt, but it does mean that when you're implementing these habits in a sustainable way, you're giving yourself that foundation to prevent, reverse, and avoid a lot of the chronic diseases that people fall prey to. Mm -hmm. It's amazing when, when you, like you had said, allows people to actually enjoy the long-term benefits in their health by doing the daily habits of positivity, of a good mindset, of just being a good person, being a good human. Yeah, and it. understanding that if this is a life you want to lead, right, you want to be able to play with your grandkids, you want to be able to be involved in your community, you want to be able to volunteer, you want to play sports, you want to be golfing on the weekends, whatever it is, to have the longevity and the stamina to be able to do that for the rest of your life means adopting practices right now, today, on a daily basis. Nice. And walk me through your sleep. You have, you have a sleep guide on your website. Yeah. How does that? Well, how do you explain that, or how do you usually promote that? Sleep is everything for me. So, having struggled with sleep for years, I totally understand what it's like to not be getting the sleep that you need. And I also know what it's like when you do start sleeping better. 
how much your life really changes. So I break down all these areas with my clients into environment, behavior, and then additional parts of supplements, whatever it is. When it comes to your environment for sleep, a lot of it has to do with light. Our bodies are so sensitive to light and for good reason, because that's what dictates our circadian rhythms. It's what dictates the secretion of melatonin, and that's what helps us sleep ultimately. So I'm helping my clients understand how to be really intentional about how they use light in the evenings, especially whether it's from a device like a smartphone or if it's just the lamps and the ceiling lights in their house. And temperature, other things like that, those all contribute to an environment that's really conducive to sleep. Now, when it comes to behavior, I want people to understand that you can use that sensitivity to light to your advantage. Andrew Huberman at Stanford has done an amazing amount of research on the neuroscience behind all this stuff. But basically, the stuff you do during the day dictates the quality of sleep you have at night. Being exposed to as much bright light, especially outdoors, early in the morning within an hour of waking does wonders for your circadian rhythm and for your ability to sleep at night. So emphasizing a lot of behaviors during the day that promote better sleep at night is one of the key things I focus on with my clients because I want them to see that connection that this isn't just this isn't just about the hour before bedtime. It's about the entire 24 hour span of the day that dictates whether or not you're going to be able to sleep well. And then finally no one really talks about that portion of, of getting your full day of understanding how it affects your sleep. That's, that's new to me. That's great. Yeah. I think we often focus on lying on bed at night and thinking, oh, I hate everything because I can't fall asleep. I've definitely had that on many occasions in my own life, right? And instead thinking about what is it that I'm doing during the day that's going to have an impact on my sleep. And when you start to widen that window, it puts less pressure on that hour before bed. I think people are overly hard on themselves, they beat themselves up, right? Because they use their phone, they're scrolling or whatever. Instead thinking about it, it's an entire day that you have really to allow yourself to develop the habits for a better night's sleep. And when you start thinking about what you do in the morning, that's going to help you sleep at night. You're giving yourself a much better shot at having a better night of sleep instead of just thinking that it's only those 30 to 60 minutes before bed that matter. When I like that, you can empathize. They can empathize with you and you with them because you've done not only the, the background information, how to sleep better and how to get not only sleep better, but also get a good night's sleep where your body recharges and relaxes, but also you've gone through yourself. This is what I've gone through. This is what I've, I've dealt with. So you can give them, like you said, little little things here and there to kind of tweak it. It's something that's working for them also, which is a combination of both. Exactly. You know, I've tried all the supplements. I've tried all the sleep meds. I understand mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't for me, at least. And I've been able to iterate. And what I want my clients to understand is that this is all a practice. This is not about having one right or wrong answer about what no. sleep is and what leads to good sleep. It's about iterating and practicing and finding out what works for you and finding out what works for your schedule, what works for your habits, what works for your values, and then adopting those practices on a regular basis. Good, good, good. You, you you have it down. And what I recommend people to go just listening to right so far, we have a little bit more to cover, is she can empathize with what you're going through because she's gone through it already. She understands what the process is, mindset, the steps to get out of it, that point, how to get you and maintain a state of health. Even if you recover from an illness, how, if you have something else happen to you, now this is your steps, actually your, your way to get out of that also too, correct? Yeah, exactly. This is a lifestyle. This is where, where we can stay healthy. That point, our body, even if it does have something, we know how to recover from on its own. Going into our last topic, uh, what is why is having a health team important? What is it? Again, there's a sense that health is the solitary pursuit, that it all comes down to you and your mindset and your brain and whether or not you made the right decision or not. Instead of thinking about what are the guardrails, the systems, the support network that I can put in place that puts less pressure on me and instead gives me the confidence, the ability, the encouragement to adopt these habits on a regular basis. 
So when I work with my clients, it's not just about helping them with their own individual habits. It's helping them understand, given your diagnosis, given where you are in your health, what's the best level of support you need? Because I'm not a healthcare practitioner. I'm not diagnosing. I'm not treating. So I want them to be able to find doctors and practitioners who are going to help them with their lab work, with their prescriptions, all that stuff. And eventually to develop that sense of autonomy over their health where they understand the significance of their lab results. They don't feel like they're just going to a doctor's appointment once a year, getting a checkup, and then nothing changes. I want them to really feel involved in the process and understand that these are your, da- these are your data, right? These are your lab results. You can look at them. You can ask questions about them. You can try and understand what's going on better. And then you develop more of a collaborative relationship with your practitioner. When you have that team of people, you have your primary care provider, you have your specialist, you have a health coach like me, you have a therapist, you have somebody who's specializing in mental health, whatever it is, you have this full spectrum approach to your health and you're less likely to fall through the cracks when something does happen that might be more catastrophic or serious. Instead, you feel like, okay, this is something that's covered. It's not a sense of stress for you anymore. Healthcare can often be this amorphous, overwhelming thing. When you have a team of experts, a team of people who are really on your side, who are rooting for you, who are specifically interested in your growth and your health, then all of a sudden this becomes so much easier of a process. You're helping someone understand this is your health, not the doctor's job, not anyone else's. They'll help you read information, give you some advice, some guidance, but how do you want to take care of your health? And when you, and you instead of saying, yes, doctor, whatever you want me to do, hey, what are my other options? How do I do this? Finding a doctor and even, like I said, a specialist like yourself too, the consultant allows them to understand now I can actually figure out what's going on if I'm proactive. They, they have to be part of the process, right? They can't just sit back and do nothing. It's about your health, you becoming your best doctor for your health. At that point, you can take care of yourself by having a team and, and consultants to help you get through that. Yeah, instead of abdicating responsibility over all areas of your health because it feels mm-hmm. really overwhelming and difficult to manage, instead you're saying where are the areas where I can be an active participant in this? And when you start to have ownership over your decisions, you're much more sustainable in these habits. It feels much more real that this is something that's happening to me, right? This isn't just a lab result. This isn't just a number on a scale. Mm -hmm. This is something that is so important to my life that I'm going to take an active role in mitigating the potential consequences of whatever this diagnosis is. I'm not going to resign myself to seeing this is how it is. I'm going to look for ways to improve and I'm going to look for ways to get better. And I'm going to find a team of people who are supportive in that. That's one thing I love doing with my patients because I want them to understand that like the values that they hold as a person are the values that they should look for in their providers. And I think a lot of it, when you, when you have that, that mindset, at that point, you can ask the right questions to the right providers. At that point, now have the bigger picture of how to get through this what else can I do? And then ask more questions. When people stop asking questions, when especially when they're stressed, at mm-hmm. that point, it becomes more, it causes more stress and more stress and, and goes the wrong way versus the correct way. Yeah, I think it's so easy to have a really avoidant strategy when it comes to your health. It's understandable. It's it's overwhelming. And honestly, I think a lot of people feel like more knowledge is going to be equated with doom, that it's just mm-hmm. going to be bad news at all points, rather than understanding like what I do with the, my volunteer work with diabetes mm-hmm. patients, right? It's about giving them the tools where they can make these decisions. And they go from, oh my gosh, I got this new diagnosis and I'm really scared to, oh, okay, this actually feels doable. I understand which foods that I should focus on and which foods I should avoid more often. Or, you know, I have some strategies now on how to 
uh, incorporate different meals into my life. I found a group where I can get my A1C checked regularly. It no longer feels like this huge intimidating process and it's impersonal. Now it's like, I'm part of a community. I have a team. I have people who are rooting for me. I can get through this. I like the community. That gives people a sense of what's going on. How do we do this through other people's experiences like yourself too? People are willing like yourself to pay it forward so they can understand, hey, someone's gone through this before. They have experience. Let me pick their brain. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Good. Yeah. Let's the show share. Notes have what good? Let's share strategies between, you know, between patients, right? Like let's find out what works for other people. Yeah. I think that's what is so fascinating about this approach is when you realize that the clients you're working with have so much wisdom because they've been through their entire lives. They know what works for them and what doesn't. It's very helpful when someone thinks of you're you're in charge of your health, you know your health the best. Let's get this work around that to make you better. Mm-hmm. And when I, in the show notes, I have all the links to to your website, to your Instagram, to your TikTok, everything else, and also your sleep guide, which is very important. Get that from her, from the show notes for one, too. How do you want to end the show? What's takeaway do you want people to kind of focus on as, as we end up here? I really want people to understand that this is all about developing that sense of agency. You know, a parallel I'll draw is like a quick diversion is when people go through the Marie Kondo process of like cleaning out their closets, all of a sudden they're empowered to do all these other changes in their lives. I think of the same thing with health. Health is an avenue for growth for you as a person. And so when you start to take more ownership over your health and your symptoms, you start to realize what you are capable of as a person. And there's nothing more empowering than that. Good. Be proactive, people. That point contact Rachel. She'll talk to you exactly what's going on with your life, help you get the next step, especially if you feel like you're stuck. You don't want to move. That's really when you have to move because it's about your health, getting your next state to better quality of life. Rachel, yeah. thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. And I'm going to, I'll go to the back office and our backstage in a second. So thank you. Appreciate it. Dr. Tony, thank you. This was a pleasure. It's fun.